Welcome to Tech in Color, a show dedicated to spotlighting diverse stories of leaders in tech and business and their journey in getting to where they are today. I'm Monsi. And I'm Michelle. Imagine waking up for work and having to spend time pouring over your closet every morning, deciding what to wear. This is an everyday reality for many women. With us today is Sarah LaFleur, founder and CEO of MM LaFleur, a company creating practical and elegant clothes for modern working women. Since she founded the company in 2013, MM LaFleur has grown to be a multi-million dollar company. Prior to founding MM LaFleur, Sarah was a private equity associate at Starwood Capital and consultant at Bain & Company. She graduated from Harvard with a degree in social studies. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, ladies, for having me. Let's jump into it. We'd love to start with your up. Could you walk us through your childhood? Were there any formative experiences that shaped you throughout high school or college? Yeah, I had a, a I guess, a, a bit of an unusual upbringing in the sense that I, you know, I'm American. I consider myself American, um, but I also consider myself Japanese. Uh, my mother is Japanese, and my father, who's the American one. Um, he worked in the State Department, um, career officer, you know, I think he was there for almost 40 years. So we moved around every, you know, three to four years, my dad would usually get a different assignment. And sometimes that meant we went with him to uh, a different country. And other times, uh, it meant that me and my sister actually stayed in Japan with my mom and my mom's family when my dad took us in places like Taiwan. So we would go back and forth, uh, you know, between Tokyo and Taiwan. And then ultimately my dad's uh, last post before he left the State Department was in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And that was actually when I was at Harvard. So when people, you know, would break, I was going back to Kuala Lumpur, that was home, even though I had technically really spent my formative years there. You know, I think to this day, I see myself as this real hodgepodge. I feel most myself when I'm in this mix of people, like a, I think, culturally diverse crew. And at one point, I think in my executive team of six people, we had like seven passports between us. My head of supply chain was from Israel. My head of finance was from Belgium. Miyako, my co-founder, was Japanese. My other co-founder was half Thai, half Canadian. You know, it was just a mix of people. And that's a, been a, a real source of joy for me is just connecting with people from different backgrounds. Yeah, it's so interesting hearing how your multicultural upbringing has shaped your perspective and also your work at MM LaFleur. After college, you worked as a consultant at Bain & Company and later at a nonprofit called TechnoServe. Could you tell us a bit about what you learned learn from these experiences and how they shaped what you wanted to do next in your career? Yeah, you know, so the plan wasn't to go into business. First of all, I think college can be so challenging in terms of trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. And at some point I considered pre-med. I thought I really wanted to go work in a refugee camp. So I tried that for a little bit. I thought maybe, you know, everyone was interested in banking. So I was like, well, maybe I'm supposed to be an investment banker. You know, my path to kind of, uh, my path to getting to where I am today was very much not a straight line. I ended up going to Bain because I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And it felt like another way of just keeping my options open a little bit longer. It ended up being the most incredible experience. I, I think that kind of high standard that Bain set was really a good training ground for me, but ultimately just, you know, a way of prolonging the decision-making a, a little bit longer. And the opportunity to go work in TechnoServe did come about because I was at Bay. TechnoServe is also a type of, um, uh, there's a, a consulting element to it. What they do is they try to um, identify business opportunities for the rural poor, often living in Africa or Latin America. So for me, it felt like the logical next step, you know, having been interested in 
uh, maybe going into the humanitarian world, but then also now getting this business background, I thought, okay, maybe TechnoServe is the perfect intersection of those two things. You know, a very long story short, I, you know, I, what I what I discovered is actually I was um, not very good at, at the nonprofit sector. It's a very interesting and admirable job. Um, I think my personality, frankly, just wasn't suited for that experience. Um, I tend to like fast-paced environments. I like... Uh, you know, data and things that, that move quickly. And a lot of the skills I think that, that make people successful in the nonprofit sector, you know, whether that's diplomacy or playing the long game, it's so essential, not really my strongest suit. And, and so ultimately I decided, I think that this isn't right for me either. Yeah. We really appreciate your openness, especially regarding careers being this kind of non-linear journey. And Also, this struggle of trying to find what your passions are and how to pursue them. I know that we and a lot of our listeners have also thought a lot about those questions. So after TechnoServe, you worked in private equity and you've described that as a dream job. What inspired you to leave to start MM LaFleur and what was that time period like for you? And could you also talk about what what the spark was that caused you to decide to go all in on your idea of starting a business? In 2006, again, like this was before the financial crash, it was kind of this thing where like if you were sharp and you liked working in fast paced environments and I think I wanted to prove to myself that I could do that. Um, I'm a woman. I'm, I'm, you know not white, but I was like, I, I, I can totally belong in that club too. Um, there was a sexiness to it. The succinct version is that I, I last maybe four months there. I left pretty quickly. I found that it was a really poor culture fit for me. It turns out I really value working in environments where there are a lot of women and like kind of the the collaborative camaraderie that I had at places like Bain, which is also a culture that I really try to create right now in my company. You know, I think for some people, that's like a, a really great place for them to work. And for me, it was... It didn't bring out the best in me. Maybe that's like a totally unsolicited piece of advice that I would offer is I think oftentimes when you are working in environments and you feel like you're not performing your best and you know it, and maybe the people around you know it, um, the people around you will probably just think like, oh, like this person, like maybe they weren't the right hire. And you yourself, you're probably thinking like, wait, I'm, I'm smart. I, I know how to do things. Like why I'm not doing well here. And the inclination I think for most people is to kind of stick it out and fight it and really prove yourself and sometimes you just have to kind of stop and think wait am I actually ever going to be successful here in the long run there's this like myth right that you shouldn't leave a workplace unless you've been there for at least a year want to protect your resume as much as possible I would kind of call bullshit on that and say don't waste your time if you're in a place that you don't feel is a true culture fit for you then you're probably never going to be that good an employee there. And you're probably never going to be that successful there. So move on and move on quickly, like cut your losses. And I, I guess that's also why I would say like when you're interviewing at a place, um, people say culture fit, culture fit. What does that mean? Culture means a lot of things, but I think one of the most important things that you as a candidate really want to identify is like, is this a place where I think I'm going to be, I'm going to do well. I'm going to be successful. It's not just like, am I going to get along with my colleagues? Like, of course you want to get along with your colleagues, but um, you know, people flourish in different environments. Some people like to go to large universities. Some people like to go to small ones. Like it's really important to find, I think the one that works best for you. We really encourage everyone coming out of who's interviewing, like 
you should know that you have the power too. You know, I know in the interview format, it's often, you know, it's the employer who supposedly has all the the hiring power, but you really want to be interviewing them as well. Yeah. It sounds like even in this tough situation of realizing that PE wasn't for you, you learned a lot. And this advice that you just mentioned about prioritizing finding culture fit, it's super applicable. So thank you for that. I guess moving on from that experience, after you finished your time working in PE, you started MM LaFleur alone with minimal funding. And you've expressed how it was a challenge to start a fashion company without having worked in fashion before. Could you tell us a little bit more about the process of launching MM LaFleur, especially in the early days? Yeah. Um, you know, so I basically, I quit my job. I didn't have a I didn't have anything to do actually. And um, in hindsight, I should have enjoyed that time a little bit more, but I think internally, you know, I was really panicking and struggling trying to figure out how I move forward from this, uh, what I found like very debilitating experience. And um, honestly, the first thing I just started doing was I just started talking to people because I had this idea that I wanted to create better clothing for women who work. And by the way, when I say women who work, um, I mean, specifically in the office context, uh, stretching and women having to wear a lot of clothes that looked like men's clothes. When I was shopping around that time, if I, if I saw suiting, I mean, I just thought it looked so horrible on me. I was always having to go to tailors to have things taken in or let out. And then if I wore a piece of clothing, it would start to rip uh, pretty quickly. I, and I was spending a lot of money on clothes I didn't particularly enjoy. And um, that was really the problem I was trying to solve, but I didn't know anything about retail or fashion, even though you know my mother worked in the fashion world. And so I think there was definitely that influence, but that's where my knowledge ended. So it was, it was a lot of kind of random random conversations. You know, my mother happened to know a friend who knew a friend who ran a factory in India. So they put me in touch and he was really kind enough to just tell me more about what it was like to run a factory. Um, I happened to know someone actually from Harvard who was a few years ahead of me who went to RISD. She actually studied textile designs. He was somebody at the fashion program who introduced me to a headhunter who ultimately introduced me to my co-founder Miyako. I think what a lot of people might feel is that a little bit aimless you're like you're drifting but that's exactly I think now in, in hindsight I understand you know how important that time was I think there when you're nursing a business idea there needs to be this time where you kind of drift a little bit and you know I think that phase actually in starting a company is one of the the most difficult phases where you're just kind of trying to grasp at straws to make sense of what it is that you want to do so you know there was that incubation period in retrospect but really what I was doing was just having coffee with a lot of people and then maybe the first most important decision that I made was hiring my co founder. Uh, and, and you don't usually hire a co-founder. Um, but I say that because she was initially brought on as a freelancer. You know, she was my designer, the woman who was going to create um, the first seven dresses for me. And Miyako came from this illustrious fashion background, having been the head designer at Zach Posen um, and having helped uh, Jason Wu uh, with his fashion label. And so um that, that was probably the initial six months of, of what things looked like after I left. Yeah, and early on, you and Miyako also went to trunk shows to get the word out about the company. And you also mentioned that you tutored part-time to make ends meet during these difficult early years. 
even now with the pandemic, a lot of us have also shifted to working remotely from home. So things must have changed for your brand built for the modern working woman. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you experienced in growing M.M. Lafleur from the early days to now? And how did you overcome those challenges? Um, so the challenges I will say are daily. I could write like probably 10 books on the number of challenges that I have experienced. You you start to see everything is kind of, everything is a challenge and, and yet nothing should, nothing really overwhelms you at the end of the day. Um, I think after 10 years of doing this, I can, I can comfortably say that. I mean, um, it doesn't mean that you don't, you don't face difficult moments. You're facing them every single day, but because you're facing them every single day, uh, it doesn't, um, it doesn't kind of scare you as much. I would say business problems that I've faced, the first one would just be, how do I find the cash to start the business, right? Fundraising, I think gets talked about a lot um, as a, a real difficulty in, in launching businesses. And that was very much true for me too. You know, I think back when I first started um, trying to fundraise in 2012, 2013, there wasn't really any conversation happening around backing female-led companies, you know, the statistics are pretty uh, abhorrent. Like I think even today, only I think a little over 2% of VC funding goes to female-led companies. And I, I can only imagine that back in 2013, 2012, it was even worse. And so that was certainly a challenge I faced. Um, I think uh, growth, you know, um, there was a point in our company where we actually ran out of money. Our cash reserves were in the negatives. We didn't know where we were going to go from there, where we were going to find growth. Growth and cash are equally challenging. Um, team, I think you're always trying to grow the team and inspire the team. You know, having been doing this for over a decade, I've been through several different phases of different different team members. Um, each one, like, so so special and so needed for, for that point in the business. And at some point, you know, either that person no longer feels like um, this company is right for them, or you think that this company is, no longer needs their skill set. Those are difficult conversations. And uh, I think just even COVID, you know, these external circumstances, the first time we really felt the impact of an external circumstance was around the 2016 election. When Trump got elected, our actually revenue took a major hit. That week, our revenue was down 70% from the prior week. And it was kind of shocking to see just um, how macro factors can impact your business. And of course, nothing will compare to the impact that COVID has had on our business. Like at any given point, you know, uh, I guess I just went through cash, growth, people, and macro factors. Those four are the ones that kind of come to mind as things you're always facing as a founder. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like growing the company has definitely been a roller coaster with so many things that you face along the way, but also been able to overcome. I guess thinking a little bit more specifically about the branding of M.M. LaFleur, from the profiles of multi-talented ampersand women, interviews with leaders like Ambassador Power and your own thought pieces. M.M. LaFleur's message and impact goes far beyond what it sells. How do you think about what M.M. LaFleur embodies and who is the M.M. woman? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that. Yeah, you know, I, 
I, uh, I'll start by saying I, I consider myself a feminist. My mom's household kind of had this belief that those who don't work don't eat. And that work could be, you know, it could come in any form. I think contributing to the household is definitely a form of work. But this idea that you needed to earn your meal. So I couldn't wait to start working. And I think my mom and my dad really showed that to me. Like they were so passionate about their careers. I think what I really noticed when it came to presenting yourself coming out of school was just how much more the emotional tax that goes into being a female professional versus a male one. You know, I see this with my husband. My husband rolls out of bed 15 minutes before he needs to be somewhere. I'm up an hour, an hour and a half before. Like now we have kids. So, you know, sometimes even earlier, I get into the shower. I make sure my hair is like not wet. Um, I put on makeup. And I think back then I, I used to find the clothing part actually one of the most challenging elements of all. Um, first of all, you want to make sure things fit comfortably. But I think beyond that, fashion was a really powerful tool um, that you can use to communicate what it is that you want to say about yourself. And often being the youngest person in the room or the only woman in the room, I really wanted to be taken seriously. Uh, I, I would say I always felt uncomfortable in them, which is ultimately why I you know, decided that something better needed to be done and started M.M. Lafleur. And so much of what I focused on now starting this company is, is really like, how do we make women feel like themselves so that they don't have to actually worry about what they're wearing? They can just focus on the work that's ahead of them. Um, so comfort is like first and foremost, um, machine washability so that you're not having to take things to the dry cleaner constantly wrinkle resistance. So you're never having to pull out the iron, which God knows I've had to do so many times at like, you know, 755 before I have to leave the house at eight. I really wanted to solve these pain points and we're, we're not solving cancer here, but I, I do strongly believe that our clothing has made it easier for women to get out of the house in the morning. In 2019, we ran a campaign called Ready to Run, where we told women who were running for office anywhere on the ballot, we would lend you clothes so that you can be on the campaign trail, hopefully not having to worry about what you're wearing. And the outpour was just overwhelming. And we heard from so many people, you know, one note that sticks with me in particular is a woman um, in Rhode Island who said, you know, I live on the poverty line. I'm a single mom with two sons. I could never afford clothing like this. But I think it's really important for people in my state to be represented by someone like me, because I know a lot of other people share my experience saying like, I'm so glad that you're doing the service because I get to focus on my campaign message. Yeah, your story about Ready to Run is really inspiring. And we really appreciate your company's efforts in that area and the work that you continue to do. Clothes definitely mean a lot more than just something that people wear. So we love that M.M. LaFleur really embodies that. You've spoken about how challenging it can be to also raise funding and lead a company as a woman. And as a Japanese and mixed race woman, how do you feel that your identity has influenced your career? And what advice would you give to your younger self or other women interested in launching their own businesses? I love seeing more women on the other side of the table, right? So if there's obviously the women who are starting these businesses and gosh, we need more of those. It's also so nice to start seeing female investors. I think it's important for female investors to then want to invest in women and specifically companies that um, get branded as pink companies. Again, about 10 years ago, and I still think this exists, there, I think, was this hesitation uh, among some female investors that they didn't want to invest in pink businesses because they wanted to be taken seriously. Pink business, I would generally define as like a business that solves women's problems. And that could be anything from fashion to cosmetics to, gosh, a breast pump. Um, 
but those were somehow seen as like more trivial businesses than like a fintech business or a biotech business. God forbid, you know, actually when I was initially pitching, um, there were investors who explicitly told me we really only try to do fintech or biotech because those are the kinds of businesses that get taken more seriously, especially down the road. Though I understand why they did it. You know, they're going up against a, a bunch of male partners who also are thinking like, oh my God, like here goes so-and-so like investing in lipstick again. I think just first of all, like recognizing that those are really important businesses worth investing in, you know, um, fashion businesses that uh, fashion businesses, I think um, the 10 richest fashion moguls, I think are, are all male. Um, I think that that may have changed recently, but they are male run businesses catering to women. And I think, I, you know, I would ask like, why, why aren't women the ones in that top 10 chart? Shouldn't women be serving women's needs? Um, so I, I think that's I think that's one shift uh, that we need to continue to push on. I think there's already been a lot of progress there that's starting to happen, but we just need to keep having that conversation. Um, and then I think in terms of advice I would give to my younger self, you know, I think this is probably true of all hungry people, but you keep focusing on the things that you didn't do well. Um, I definitely had that tendency to fixate. I think there's a part of me that is able to keep pushing myself because I also harness the power of negative thinking. <laughs> the let's play out all the things that could go wrong um, and then let's solve for them. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a believer that negative thinking can also actually motivate you to foresee problems that maybe others don't and just, and just motivate you to do better. So um, I do believe in that, but I also wish I had been kinder to myself and, and I think see things in a, in a longer time horizon. Um, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up, that businesses serving women are just as important and worthy of funding as the next big biotech venture. That's so true. And I also love the point that it's important to be realistic about potential obstacles that might come up. Before we wrap up, we'd love to get to know you a little bit more outside of work too. How does a round of quickfire questions sound? That sounds fun. <laughs> okay, the first one is, what's your favorite hobby? How do you unwind and manage stress? Oh, um, <laughs> well, my husband and I, um, I, I will tell you, like, this is just, if I'm being real right now, um, with our three babies um, and our 85 pound dog, we just kind of crash onto the sofa and watch TV at night. Um, on the weekends, what we actually really love to do is go hiking. And when I say hiking, it sounds so intense, but, uh, you know, it's kind of this uh, relaxing hiking that you could do with a cup of coffee in hand definitely agree that nature can be amazing for just letting the mind go and wander where it needs to go. Absolutely. Like leave your phone behind. That's huge. Yeah. If you could have dinner with three people dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, well today, Stacey Abrams, number one, I'm just so inspired by her. I, I, I just like, if I could take a moment to talk about Stacey Abrams, because I just, you know, someone, I was having a conversation about her with someone who said, you know, a guy would never have done what she had done. If he had lost the election in 2018, he would have run for Senate in 2020. But what she did was she decided to organize and help two men get elected. And, you know, hopefully she'll be governor in 2022. But I just, I love her kind of, she put her mind to it and she 
got shit done. And she's a, a real, I think, example of what selfless collaborative leadership looks like. Um, Eileen Fisher is a fashion designer that I really admire. Um, I think a lot of people think, oh, that's what my mom wears or that's what my grandmother wears. But she was, I think, the original ethical fashion designer. Now everyone's talking about, you know, ethical, environmentally friendly consumerism, but she's been talking about it since I want to say the 1980s. I guess I'm thinking Amy Schumer. And I, you know, I say this specifically because I I struggled with um, infertility for, I'd say like three years um, before finally having my babies. And um, Amy Schumer, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen her uh, stand-up comedy? And then there's the documentary behind it, Expecting Amy. And Mm -hmm. she's so forthcoming about her challenges uh, being pregnant, um, what it's like to be pregnant and and also like having her career uh, alongside that. And I was just like, wow, amen, Amy. Like it takes guts to talk about pregnancy as publicly as she did. And I just, I really respect her for it. So those would be my three. Well, those women are all incredible. And with you at the table too, that would be a powerful dinner table. (laughs) It's very kind of you. Yeah, but I just, I think those women are, they're my heroes. I love them. Okay, next question. What is your biggest life hack? My biggest life hack, sleep. I am not one of those CEOs that's like up at 4 a.m. Um, I have three babies, but I really, really like to sleep and I'll take naps during the day if I can't somehow squeeze it in. Definitely agree with that. And reading in bed is one of the best things. It um, is. So kind of going off of that, what is your favorite book? Favorite book? is probably, I keep coming back to um, Atonement by Ian McEwan, which I read actually in that refugee camp in Zambia. So I was what, 21, so 16 years ago. Um, It's always stuck with me. I think he's one of the most beautiful writers. Um, uh, And if we're just having along the the conversations of feminism that we've been having, one that was really game-changing for me was The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, which I read as part of social studies it's fundamentally changed the way I think about women. Um, and I think it's a book that's just as relevant today as it was, what, 70 years ago when she wrote it. So highly recommend it. Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like I've seen so many quotes from The Second Sex, so definitely have to read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us and for sharing your journey. It's been a pleasure to learn from you. And if there's any social media or content you'd like to plug, this is your chance to let our listeners know where to find you. Um, Well, thank you so much. I think uh, many of you will probably be going into interview mode, um, or maybe you're going to be starting your first jobs. Um, You know, at MM LeFleur, we pride ourselves on making beautiful, comfortable clothing, not just for women who work in corporate environments, but um, for women who work in more creative spaces too, um, or tech uh, marketing. Um, We've got a lot of casual pieces as well. So I would love for you to try it out. Um, we do have a code that we made especially for Tech in Color. Um, the code is Tech in Color 20, um, 20% off uh, a purchase. Um, so I hope you will take advantage. Um, and if we can ever help you style you or um, do a, just think about your wardrobe, um, our stylists, uh, their services come for free. So you should definitely take advantage of that. Um, and I'm wishing all of you luck on your journey. Um, it's, it's, 
I know it's hard, but it's you're such it's such an exciting point in your lives, and um, hope you can find some joy in the struggle too. That's some awesome advice. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Tech and Color. If you're interested in following our journey and hearing from more leaders in tech and business, follow us on Instagram at Tech and Color Podcast, on Twitter at Tech and Color Cast, and on Spotify. We love to hear from listeners like you, so please reach out if you'd like to work with us.